Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from political scandals to love affairs, the battles waged and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it by reading different ancient authors and comparing their accounts. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of your favourite ancient Roman history podcast, The Partial Historians. I am Dr. Rad. You're Dr. G, actually. (laughs) Psych, it's a new year. (laughs) I'm Dr. G. Excellent. And I am Dr. Rad. Uh, I'm very very confused, little Dr. Rad. (laughs) I was just thinking, you know, new year, we'll switch it up. We'll see if anybody notices. You notice straight away, though. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a fairly distinctive name. (laughs) I've had it all my life. (laughs) Well, well, well. (laughs) Uh, Well, welcome back, Dr. G. We are indeed in a new year. It's 2024. At time of recording, yes. (laughs) It is a time of recording. Uh, And in terms of our tracing the journey of Rome from the founding of the city, we had a very big episode last episode when we were talking about 409 BCE. Yeah, not only is this like the landmark year that marks the first century of the Roman Republic, but oh boy, was it full of plebeian action. It was indeed. I believe that after some lengthy hand wringing <laughs> and some classic conflict of the orders narrative, we did finally get a plebeian into the quaestorship. That's madness. It's crazy. I won't stand I for it. <laughs> Clearly, the world is going to end. I mean, that's all equality ever really means, isn't it? Mm, it's all over, guys. I don't know how the patricians are going to hold up anymore. There's not enough fast cars or enough muscle to get them through this. <laughs> That's right. They certainly did look at it as a sign that the world was about to end. Indeed. But I don't think it has fallen apart completely because we're here to talk about what happens after 409. We are. Will the privilege maintain their position of privilege <laughs> or will they have to concede more to whoever mysterious people the plebeians actually are. (laughs) I guess we'll find out. The other thing that's running parallel to this whole situation is Mm. what appears to be an expanded conflict with the Aquians and the Volscians. So Rome is going through a bit of a military upheaval. They are. They are indeed. I mean, we've talked about these guys on and off, you know, for a while now, but it does seem to be particularly flaring up at this point in the century. Indeed. So with that sort of background in place, I think we might be ready to step into 408 BCE. Uh, 
8 BCE. Now, Dr. G, I'm presuming Dionysius is still keeping his distance from you. (laughs) That man is hiding from me in his fragments and I don't know what is going on. So poor Dr. G has no narrative source material once again, dear <laughs> listeners. But I'll bet you anything she can tell us who the magistrates are for this year. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it's not so bad. I can tell you things like who's who. I do have the Fasti Capitolini, which is the ultimate guide to who's who as far as most of us are concerned. And I have some little snippets from Diodorus Siculus as well. So we'll get to those in due course. Okay, okay. But we start off with a year where military tribunes with consular power appear to have been voted in. Yes. (laughs) And we have three of these guys this year. Yes. We have Gaius Julius Volpiski Ullus, a patrician. We have Publius Cornelius Crossus, a patrician. Yeah. And a Gaius Suilius Ahala. A patrician. Well, Dr. G, I can't say that I'm surprised, but given the way the patricians were carrying on last time, I really thought that maybe this was going to be the year when finally we were going to see or see (laughs) (laughs) a plebeian elected into this position. But no, once again, I am amazingly disappointed. It's too soon. The quaestorship is one thing, but... How dare the plebeians attempt to make a grab for anything beyond their station? <laughs> well, that's clearly what the patricians were worried about last episode. They thought that, you know, the quaestorship was, you know, just a stepping stone and it was all going to be downhill from here as far as they were concerned, whereas the plebeians seem to be very much, it's only uphill from here. <laughs> there does so. seem to be a sense in which there might be multiple issues at play, though, because usually mm. when the patricians become quite scared of plebeians rising in influence and power in an official capacity, they opt for the consulship as a deliberate move to lock out plebeians. So we've got this kind of understanding that's given to us through our analytic sources. Obviously, there are some question marks there. But (laughs) the consulship is still the preserve of the elites and that if a plebeian were to get into a high position that would include a military command, it would be as a military tribune with consular power. That's that's yeah. one of the rationales that's been put forward for why this position developed in the first place. Yes. And yet, on the back of 409, where we see a rise in plebeians coming into the quaestorship, we now see that 408 has military tribunes with consular power. So is it there is military issues on the horizon that Rome is concerned about and they're going to take a risk because they haven't opted for the consulship here? No, remember that last episode, that was a point of contention and the patricians were dead against this idea (laughs) because of the reasons you have outlined. But at least I suppose the plebeians had the opportunity (laughs) to get (laughs) someone elected once again and yet didn't take it it seems <laughs> oh look you had your chances plebeians and you fluffed it well i mean look this is where we have to go back to the voting system of course as far as we can understand it which of course we may not be able to because we may not really have an accurate record of what exactly was happening in order to get elected at this point in time but i think we've talked before about the fact that the voting system is also rigged against people who are poorer. Now, plebeians aren't necessarily poorer. That is true. But 
if we're talking about there being a more nuanced class divide, as we have before, where you may have wealthy plebeians who are actually voting along with patricians because their interests actually align more with the wealthy, regardless of whether they're patrician or plebeian. And then you've got maybe a sizable group of plebeians who aren't as economically stable or whatever. Yeah, that, that, that might lead to issues in the voting system, which might have been simplified over time. That's one possible way of looking at it. <laughs> For sure. And I think this is the sort of thing where networking and your allegiances through society become one of those things as well. The patricians have a very particular network. And I would say that the plebeians are probably trying to build those kinds of networks, but maybe aren't necessarily getting themselves across the line with the amount of influence they need for these electoral processes to work out in their favour. Oh, absolutely. And that's really, I think, what this whole supposed conflict of the orders is all about, really. It's not really about whether you're patrician or plebeian in a sense. It's about the level of privilege that you have and the amount of opportunities that are open to you. Mm, Well, on that note, not only do we have military tribunes with consular power, but I have to assume that something does happen this year (laughs) because we also get a dictator and their companion, a master of the horse. (laughs) So Publius Cornelius Rutilus Cossus, mm. possibly a relation of the military tribune with consular power, Publius Cornelius Cossus. Their names are disturbingly similar. Yeah. Very similar, very similar. <laughs> yeah. uh, it comes into the dictatorship. Mm. Now, I'm assuming that you might be able to tell me the story about how and why that all comes about. Oh, Livy might have told me a thing or two. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. And he also brings with him one of the military tribunes with consular power, Gaius mm. Servilius Ahala, the armpit, brings him across <laughs> from that role into being his master of the horse. Just in case people haven't listened to that episode, which was a while ago now, she's not just calling this guy an armpit. It's not like a horrible slur. <laughs> That's what Ahala may mean. <laughs> that's, that's the, yeah, I'm just running with the Latin, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's put the armpit in power. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is interesting, actually, because, I mean, if we go back in time briefly, Dr. G, there was an Ahala who was involved in a very dramatic series of events. I, I can't even remember how long ago it was. Was it last year or was it even the year before? I think it, I think it might have been the year before, 2022, that we were talking about the Ahala that really put this family on the map. Uh, Yes, I think it's around about 439 BCE or 431, somewhere in there, at least nearly 20 years ago by Roman standards and maybe a couple of years ago by our own. And it kind of makes sense that this family is, you know, starting to creep back into the records a little bit because just to give everyone a very brief overview... The Ahala that we enjoyed talking about so much before was involved in the scandal around the Nacho King of Rome. (laughs) Spurious Malius. Yes, yeah, there was this whole issue. To be honest, we couldn't really figure out what on earth was going on, but it kind of seemed like an attempt by someone who wasn't from the patrician class to curry favour or... Or he was maybe given power and the patricians were like, oh, hell no. Either way, this guy ended up being essentially murdered in broad daylight. And 
the guy that seems to have done the murdering was Ahala. Well, and, and there's some speculation that he got his name from that moment because he had gone into the forum with mm. a hidden weapon under his arm. Indeed, indeed. And the upshot of that was that he had to leave Rome. <laughs> so... It's interesting that he's, I mean, this isn't the same guy, obviously. No, but the family is clearly back. <laughs> yes, but yeah, definitely after that whole incident and the leaving of Rome and, and that sort of thing, we, we definitely didn't mention that name, you know, for a while, but now it's starting to creep back in a little bit. Yeah, they've returned and they're ready to take their place in the top tier of political spots. They have spawned. A generation has passed in Roman times. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what does happen this year? How do we get a dictator? Please tell me. I'm like, I'm on like tender hooks of suspense being like, oh, I got his names. <laughs> <laughs> what an excellent question. Well, let's go back to the elections for a moment, shall we? This question of military tribunes with consular power. So Livy very smugly says that although technically in 409, the plebs won the battle to have elections for military tribunes rather than consuls, as you outlined, for the various reasons. The patricians were the real winners in the end because, of course, only patricians got elected. Ha, ha, ha. Actually, no, I need to make that more upper class. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, you need to be holding a glass of whiskey giving. <laughs> I definitely am. I've sparked up a Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so obviously we have our tribunes who got elected. So the way that the, the way that this happened, it wasn't just what we've seen before, which is that Livy keeps telling me that, well, sure, the plebeians are technically able to elect a fellow pleb to this position, but why would they? I mean, how can they be persuaded to do that when there are all these amazing blue-blooded candidates standing up there? They're dazzled. By the blue blood, Dr. G, and the diamonds <laughs> on the soles of their shoes. <laughs> well, look, I mean, if somebody had diamonds on the soles of their shoes, I would be bamboozled, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so instead, what had happened in this particular case is that the patricians, being worried, obviously, because, of course, a plebeian getting this position would be the actual end of the world, not just a sign that the end of the world was coming, they and I'm quoting directly here, mix some unworthy competitors with the deserving. So, yeah, basically it was like a ruse to choose some people that clearly weren't going to appeal, weren't going to get elected, and sort of confuse the voters. So they they didn't just put forward rubbish candidates or, like, allow rubbish candidates to run, but they made sure that it was confusing enough that a plebeian would not get elected. Okay, so you want to stick with the safe bet. You're like, oh, there's a lot of names in here. I'm not sure if I know these people. I'm just going to go with the ones I recognize. I, I think they actually do know these people. I think they know that these people are crap. <laughs> <laughs> and so because I presume, I mean, look, this is where knowing a little bit more about how elections actually work would be uh, helpful, I guess. But I think it's by somehow the patricians, and I don't really understand how they did this, but I guess they must have some control over organizing the election. I guess Mm. they just made sure that all of the plebeians who were running were not great choices. Interesting. All right. So this would make sense on some level. I think you're right to assume that the patricians are largely in charge of organizing elections. I think this is a delegated function Mm. how that actually looks right now 
in this very early period of the Republic. I don't think we're quite sure, Mm. but it would make sense for magistrates to organise and lead that, and that's certainly how it develops later on. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) The plebeians aren't fooled by this entirely. I mean, obviously they're fooled enough not to vote (laughs) for plebeians, but when I say plebeians, I mean the Achillei. They re-enter our story, Dr. G. Excellent. Yes. Now, the Achillei are a very prominent plebeian family who apparently were like the only people (laughs) worthy of being named on the plebeian side of things last episode because they tend to pop up in our sources when there's a particularly big moment or a huge development in terms of patrician plebeian relations taking place and last episode definitely was what with you know a plebeian becoming quaestor and you know then all the conflict of the order stuff that ensued as a result of that yeah they do become synonymous with plebeian uprisings and uh, sort of movements and shifts for power from the plebeian side yes but the patricians very carefully had arranged it so that we, we apparently had three of the Achillei as tribunes of the pleb last episode in 409. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if I believe that, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is what we're told. I mean, I like to believe it because if we don't believe it, then who's tailing the senators and the consuls when in their little, you know, trench coats and spying on them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, which is apparently what happened. Uh, But anyway, so the Achillei are aware of what's going on, but the patricians had made sure that they couldn't be tribunes of the plebs again in 408, and they'd also made sure that these particular men couldn't run to be military tribune. So they'd made sure that these very popular plebeian leaders weren't going to be on the ballot, as it were. (laughs) Interesting. Okay, so... The capacity for the plebeians to be able to vote in people that they know are effective, that sort of sit within their social milieu, is off the table. So not only is the the voting allocation confused and there's some weird names in there, but the names that they would want to vote for haven't made it on. Well, yes. I mean, the the Achillei, Achilleans, (laughs) whatever you want to call them, they certainly are strident. And they're mm-hmm. not afraid to obviously stand up for plebeian rights, etc. So I think taking them out of the running certainly is a bit of a blow because obviously they would have pushed for something quite radical if we're going with the storyline that we presented with, which is that this is their family trait. This runs, you know, throughout all the members of their gens for generations, you know. Yeah, and the Romans yeah. are very much into that kind of thing. Like what you pick up through your family line defines your character in many respects. Yes, so the Achillei know what's going on, but there's not much that they can do about it at this point in time. Let's segue now, Dr. G, (laughs) to a rumour that arrives in Rome about external relations. The Volskians and the Aquians have got back together and apparently stronger than ever. I mean, I feel like I say that every time. (laughs) (laughs) They're back, guys. Yeah, now it's... Livy very helpfully tells me that maybe this is related to the fact that uh, we, did, we did have the, the scandal over Carventum that we've talked about in the past where this seems to have been uh, trading hands between the Romans and their enemies at this point in time. We don't mm-hmm. know where it is, but it's somewhere in the area. And <laughs> it, it's going backwards and forwards like a hot potato. 
Uh, at the moment, the Volskian and I guess slash Aquian forces have managed to get that back from Rome. So they are perhaps feeling, you know, a bit smug, good about themselves, strutting around, you know. Uh, or it could be that they are livid, Dr. G, because they lost a place called Verugo. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Either yeah. way, they've got fire under their asses. <laughs> Yeah, so we've got this situation where we think these places are east of Rome and sort of southeast and sitting on the juncture between what is Roman territory, what is Aquian territory, and what is coming up from the south, the tip of Volscian territory. So this kind of contested area between the three groups is now hot potatoes uh, as we're hitting 408. Yes, definitely. Now, this is where we've got another location coming into the story the people from look i'm going to say it's antietes 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 <laughs> are these the people from antium yeah i think so yeah the the uh, antietes antietes <laughs> <laughs> i'm just going to say the people from antium I'm, yeah. I'm not gonna i'm not gonna try that one um the antietes yeah antietes yeah the antietes so they send envoys to the Volskians and the Aquines, which basically says this. <laughs> In case you missed that very subtle explanation, they were calling them chickens <laughs> <laughs> because they were like, how embarrassment that, okay, sure, you have Carventon back in your possession, but... You did that by remaining behind the walls. Safety. (laughs) Safety? Seriously? Where's the bravery in that? And they allowed the Romans to capture Verugo. (sighs) All right. So so you're telling me that the Volskii and the Aquians are copying some uh, derision from the people of Antium? Is this what's going on? Okay. All right. Antium is sort of directly south of Rome on the bay as you're you're heading around towards Campania. So it's got this kind of section where if we're talking about Antium, and I think we are. No, no, we are. are, are, Rome has had this sort of conflict with the Volskii over time around control of Antium. And they had that moment where they put some settlers in there and stuff like that. But Antium is a bit of a live wire and clearly (laughs) (laughs) just sort of picks and chooses whose side it's on, depending on what's going on. And this means that the Volsci are getting laughed at by people a little bit to the west and a little bit to the south, but they're also facing a situation where they've gotten back together with the Aquians. So, you know, there's some mixed feelings here. They're feeling bolstered up and strengthened by their renewed friendship with the Aquii, but they're also feeling a little bit like Antium is not respecting them the way that they should. Yes, and I think that they're concerned. I mean, as we said, there is a bit of a trend happening in Rome at this point in time after being actually kind of a little quiet on the expansion front for actually a number of decades. Uh, and, this, and this would make sense because we talked about the fact that economically it seems to have been a bit of a tough time in the sort of middle to late century that we're in. Um, but at this point in time, as we're getting more towards the the tip into a new century, it does seem like Rome is not just, you know, finding people when they have to or dealing with 
kind of like territory control. It does seem like they are more interested in actual expansion, adding to their territory, and that's kind of what we're seeing over time here. And that's, I think, what people in the era are supposedly picking up on as well. So they're yeah. saying, hello, are you not seeing the warning signs, guys? The Romans are clearly <laughs> just going to keep sending out armies. And then once they've managed to secure a triumph, they'll just set up more colonies. And they're like, uh, did you know that the Romans have got all your stuff? Did you know that they've divided it all up? Did you know that they had taken Ferentinum? And just giving it away to the Hernici? Did you know this? Did you know this? And the Volskians... Are you paying attention? Wake up, sheeple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the Volskians <laughs> and Aquans are like, you know what? We did know this because Livy told us. <laughs> <laughs> I read that book. <laughs> but you know what? When you put it like that and you put it all together, I'm pretty angry. We're all pretty angry. <laughs> so the envoys start traveling around and enlisting young men and people from Antium, the Volscians and the Aquians all eventually meet up at Antium and establish a camp there and then they just sit back and wait for the Romans to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to kick our heels back. We're near the seaside. It's going to be nice, guys. It's going to be nice. Yeah. Now, as you've highlighted, definitely Antium... It is a place of interest. It, it has been a while since we have explicitly mentioned it. Uh, if listeners want to check out some stuff on Antium in the past, please go back to our episode on 459 BCE. <laughs> uh, but it does kind of make sense that there would be potential conflict over this area, as you said, at this point in time, given that it seems like the Romans are making a concerted effort to once and for all get the Volscians, the Aquians, out of this area and make sure that their hold on territory in this region is secure because... but And it's obviously just part of this narrative that Livy is constructing because it doesn't really make sense that the people from Antium would potentially be that concerned about, like, say, Verugo. No, I think they'd probably not be concerned about Verugo at all, really. No, but it's obviously being constructed so that we understand why, I guess, these people are coming together. Hmm. I think I also, before we move on, I'll offer a small correction sure. on the location of Antium. Sure. So it is where modern Ancio is. Right. So we're talking a little bit south of Rome, but it's on the coast. Right. Not that far from modern Rome if you're driving a car, but like a reasonable march if you were on foot. Right. So these people historically are considered to be a different linguistic group. They're not Latin speakers necessarily, although there's bound to be some of them by yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But this whole sort of area that sort of forms a ring around Roman influence in every direction is starting to come under more pressure. That's pretty clear. Right, yes. Yeah, and that, that all makes sense um, because the Volscans and the Aquians are also not Latin peoples either. So, yeah, mm. all makes sense. So anyway, the Romans, of course, hear about all of this and they are abuzz with the news of what is happening. The Senate decide that the fact that three peoples have ganged up, this is clearly an emergency. Too many people are against yeah, us. We, can do it. we must. Yeah. 
We can deal with just the Volskians and the Aquians, but you throw Antium in there? I don't think so. <laughs> Especially after they've already gone out of their way to conquer Antium, at least once. Oh, no, they, they definitely have. Antium is definitely meant to be there. <laughs> Yes, I'd say Rome sees Antium as part of its broader sphere of influence and the idea that Antium doesn't agree is not okay. Yeah, absolutely. So the Senate decide that because this is an emergency, it's time for a dictator. Oh, Oh, well, that resolves that narrative quirk for me. Thank you. It does indeed. (laughs) However, it doesn't go as smoothly as the Romans might have been hoping because two of the military tribunes decided... They didn't like this decision. Not, <laughs> not one bit. Is that the two that got left out and weren't chosen to be master of the horse? <laughs> they have something to do with the pony. But so Julius and Cornelius, okay, they decide to have a right old bitch session about the fact that they've just been elected into this premier magistracy and now it's being seemingly taken away from them. I was going to say, it's all lemons over there for those two. It really is. (laughs) Their unhappiness was so palpable that the leading senators complained that the military tribunes were not being very respectful of senatorial control. Rude. (laughs) Goodness me. Oh, dear. (laughs) So much so that they even turn to the tribunes of the plebs and they say, hey, would you mind weighing in here and using some of your powers? (laughs) I mean, this is a big moment. I'm really sad that I don't have any narrative source (laughs) material now. For the Senate to rock up to the Tribune of the Plebs. Mind you, we don't know who those guys are, so this clearly doesn't work out very well for them. But what do the Senate think that the Tribune of the Plebs are going to do? I'm not sure that they necessarily care about this petty infighting amongst the patrician elite. Well, I mean, they care in that they always like to see the patricians divided amongst themselves. (laughs) In fact, they're actually ecstatic that the senators are fighting. <laughs> I mean, it's good to see a bit of an internal collapse over there. But, yeah, uh... but you're right. You're right in the sense that it doesn't seem to really be within their remit to deal with this. I was going to say, this is not really something that the Tribune of the Plebs would necessarily deal with. I mean, they're allowed to sort of step in for plebeian matters. And obviously they might contentiously make a situation where the patricians aren't getting along worse by siding with one or the other (laughs) exactly and i mean there's this like weird reference to the fact that they'd used their powers before against consuls who'd gotten out of hand and i'm like well but in what context like like to deal with uppity consuls who were causing issues for the plebeians like yeah yeah. i was gonna say generally it's an interference on something like the levy or you know trying to turn up when the consuls are giving speeches to be disruptive. Um, I'm not sure how they how the Senate thinks the tribunes are going to support them. <laughs> no, this is one of those moments where, like, I, I had a browse back through and I'm like, I don't remember what this could possibly be referring to unless it's, like, something that hasn't been mentioned because we have talked about the fact that the tribunes of the plebs aren't always actually on the side of the plebs or... This is true. Or at least, I should say, the dispossessed plebeians. <laughs> yes, they might be on the side of the very elite plebeians, who in many respects are indistinguishable from the patricians themselves. Yeah, so look, if anybody else has a clear recollection of what on earth Livy's talking about here, please enlighten me, because I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. Uh, offer a comment on our website. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
tweet us or send us a message on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so apparent, apart from getting some popcorn ready and sitting back to enjoy the show, the Tribunes refuse to have anything to do with this situation because they're like, you know what, why should we help people that don't even think we're proper citizens or even human beings, as you made very clear last year? Snap. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're like, maybe... If all the magistracies were just open to anyone, you know, like a patrician could be a tribune of the plebs, which actually we have seen, so technically that's true. Or, you know, a plebeian could be a consul and there wasn't any distinction, then maybe the tribunes would be, I don't know, remotely interested in helping out the Senate here and making sure that the magistrates are doing what they're supposed to do and behaving. But you know what? That's fantasy land. Again, as you made very clear in 409, the patricians just do whatever they want. They don't even care about the laws. And so you know what? The tribunes are going to do whatever the hell they want to. Oh, boy. Okay, so we've got a little bit of, like, chaos rules in Rome. Meanwhile, on the fringes of Roman territory of influence... Uh, all of their non-friends slash neighbours <laughs> banding together with some sort of dastardly plan. Yeah, and so because there's apparently no help from the tribunes, although dubious, the Romans are still very much caught up in the internal drama, even though they're facing a huge external issue right here and that's what they should be focusing on because Julius and Cornelius are still going on and on and on about how <laughs> unjust it is that they couldn't just run the campaign themselves. I mean, hello, it's in the title, Military Tribune with Consular Power. We were elected to the position. I mean, hello, they could totally do it. Put them up. Put them up. <laughs> I, I think this maybe indicates that even the patricians did not have confidence in the outcome of this botched election process where they threw in a whole bunch of names and they got a whole bunch of people coming out the other side, including an Ahala who seems to be the only one who's making it for himself as master of the horse. <laughs> but nobody was expecting that family to make a comeback. And then the other two are like, we come from illustrious families. Why aren't we getting the gig? I can only imagine the dinner table conversation between Publius Cornelius Cossus, military tribune with consular power, <laughs> and his possible cousin of some kind, Publius Cornelius Rutilus Cossus, <laughs> who becomes the dictator, and just being like, why? Why would you do this to me? I was, I was so close. You couldn't let me have my moment, could you? Why are you always doing this to me? I hate you. Go to my room. Uh, anyway, so speaking of Ahala, this is where he enters our story. So you might have noticed that he's been very silent on these matters, even though he is also a military tribune with consular power. <laughs> I assume he only talks by doing armpit movements with yeah. his hand underneath. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a little little trumpet going yeah. on. <laughs> so he finally breaks his silence and he says, look, it's obvious what I think about this situation. Any decent, good Roman always puts the state ahead of himself. And he, w- <laughs> he was just sitting there with his head in his hands, hoping that his colleagues would come to their senses, concede to what the Senate has, you know, decreed is the best course of action. But now it's got to the point where the tribunes of the plebs 
The plebs, Dr. G, are being asked to keep them in line and it's obviously gone far enough. Oh, look, I feel like that's a very safe and easy position for this man to take considering he's benefited from (laughs) an upgrade. Shush, shush you. So, (laughs) So Ahala is like, look, if it was up to me, I would just let them talk themselves out and wake up to themselves at their own good time. But there's a war on people. This is urgent, hence the dictator's situation. And, <laughs> and he's like, I have to put Rome first. And if the Senate thinks that a dictator is the course to take, then a dictator should be chosen that very night. Mm, the drama. Now, of course, everyone is very impressed by this because we know that the Romans cannot help but swoon for someone who allegedly is putting the state before any personal motivations. Mm, women fainting in the streets. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, oh. In the streets, I think not, Duchy, in the privacy of their own homes. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, I might just add, really ties into a theme that has been detected in this particular section of Livy, which is that of moderatio. Mm. Yes. Just a little side note. Anyway, so... Ahala chooses Publius Cornelius as dictator, and then Cornelius says, you know what, Ahala? You're all right. And therefore (laughs) chooses him to be master of the horse because, of course, he wants to make a point. The dictator is like, you see, power comes to those who don't actually seek it, which, again, is another thing that the Romans cannot get enough of. Yeah, there's nothing like the reluctant leader. Uh, Look, honestly... Whenever anybody starts going to town on Gladiator, I'm like, you know what? (laughs) I can't help but love that movie because it is so right that the hero is like, what, me? (laughs) You want me to do this job? I couldn't possibly. Yeah, it it is uh, embodying some really particular Roman values. Now, as it turns out, this whole war and emergency situation was very anticlimactic. It was a very easy battle and it was very quickly over. Which, where did they end up fighting? Antium. I mean, this is how little little detail I have. Yeah, oh, yeah. Antium. Okay, so they, they head out to Antium, do the business. Which is apparently where the people from Antium, the Volscans and the Aquans were just like, and now we wait. <laughs> We're just going to sit here and see what happens next. Oh, no, the Romans turned up. Now, the Romans, obviously, because they've had such an easy battle, they have lots of energy for pillaging and rampaging through Volscian territory. Not only do they manage to steamroll the enemy, but they also apparently manage to capture a fortress at Lake Fusinus, or or Fucinus. This is outside the can of my knowledge. (laughs) I I think this uh, this location will come up a bit, actually. I remember it because of uh, Agrippina the Younger and Claudius having a bit of a a thing here later on. We'll get to that in, you know, I don't know, (laughs) 20 or 30 years. It stands mentioning not only do they capture a fortress, but they also apparently capture 3,000 men as their prisoners of war. Mm. Yeah. Okay, impressive. Yeah. Uh, the remainder of the of the enemy just try and hide behind city walls where they can and just really leave their territory to the Romans. They're just like, yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna stop you. All right, so a resounding victory for Rome. It is now the geography is a little off again, <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't a hundred percent seem to add up if you're just like looking at maps, etc. Yeah, I was gonna say, I'm like, one, why are the Aquians all the way over in Antium? For instance. Well, because the anti called them chicken. <laughs> 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 I 
Well, it's true. Anytime somebody calls me a chicken, I immediately go over to where they are and be like, oi. Back to the future has taught us nothing. It's that calling someone a chicken is the worst thing that you can do. Uh, it, but it doesn't entirely make sense that why winning at Antium, the Romans would be like, let's capture that fort by the Fusine Lake. The Fusine Lake, the Lago Fucino, it says that it's going to be in Abruzzo, which is the region that is sort of next to and south of Lazio, right. Latin territory. Right, right, right. But the trouble with that is that still seems like it's too far away from where we are well, right now. Well, that's exactly it. It does seem to be too far away. And given that Verugo and Carventum seem to be about Latium, mm-hmm. the geography, yeah. I would expect that lake to be somewhere nearby as well. Yeah, exactly. It just it doesn't entirely add up in the account that we've got here. It may be because Livy is using a different source material or or at least he's in transition mm. with his source material and therefore is trying to pull various things together or he's been following one source for s- some period of time and now he's switched to another source and therefore the details are kind of contradicting themselves. And this is the kind of stuff that people cite when they say that Livy is not a great historian because... He's not necessarily stopping and thinking to himself, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, if you've only got three books to read, they're all good books, aren't well, they? Well, I mean, for example, I think we have got to this part so far, so I'm going to mention it. There, there has been a point where, where Livy has obviously laboured the fact that the patricians are wealthy because of the land that they control and own and all that kind of stuff. But in another part of his narrative, he talks about the patricians being able to, like, rock up with wagons full of bronze. So, you know, just a few things here where you're like, I don't know if this is all applicable to this time period. I don't know if this all makes sense. It, we can't be sure, obviously, of what's going on. But, yeah, there are just like little things like that where it seems to be, you know, maybe a bit of confusion in terms of the details that he's got here. Well, and fair enough. I mean, he's dealing with a period that's well before his own time. The source material is bound to be quite limited. Yeah. And I don't know about the process of authorship either. Like, generally speaking, we understand that writers like Livy are probably not putting pen to paper themselves. They're probably dictating to somebody who writes it down. <laughs> a young woman with spectacles. <laughs> yes, sir, yes, sir. And, and she's doing shorthand the whole yeah. time. But to what extent they might go back and read over the things that they dictate. Yes, exactly, exactly. I, I don't know. Like, what are the processes, like, within that? So there's lots that we don't know, which might explain some of the sort of changes in details and the odd anomalies that come through that wouldn't fly with a publisher nowadays. Yes, exactly, exactly. We can't hold them to the same standards because what they're doing is inherently more difficult than typing something up. That is yeah. true. So... Are there any more events in this year from yes. Livy's perspective? Yes, there are. Okay. All right. Okay. I, I will I will hold tight on my little clump of yeah, information. Just, just, just a little <laughs> bit more detail. So obviously after, yeah. after all the raping and pillaging and all that kind of stuff, the dictator heads back to Rome. I mean, he was hardly in charge, Dr. G. It was blink of an eye, really, after all this fuss. And he resigns his position as any good de- dictator would do. Mm-hmm. Now, there was nothing said about what was going to happen for next year. As in, are we going to have military tribunes? Oh, 
are we going to have consuls? It just goes straight mm. to an election for military tribunes, which is interesting given all the concern, you know, that was has been exhibited historically by the patricians over this particular type of election. Yeah. Livy is wondering if maybe it's because there has been a dictator. Not really sure if that's like, I don't know, messed with people's heads or something like that. But the patricians are certainly worried. They're like, are all the patricians on board here? Shouldn't we be worried about this? The whole tribute of the plebs thing in this year, that seems concerning. I feel like we're not a unified force anymore, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Rome is politically falling apart. So, as in the election for the year that we're currently in, they make sure that the worst plebeians are chosen to run alongside some worthwhile ones to make the people hate the plebeian candidates as a whole and then only chose the very, very best people to run from the Senate and Patrician who Livy lumps in as being like one group, basically. And therefore, spoilers, we're going to have all Patricians for the next year as well. But (laughs) Uh, also people that had all served as military tribunes before, which might say something about their family, you know, being on the rise, but it might also say something about this, you know, combative, aggressive expansion kind of place we seem to be in right now. Yeah, I think this tells us something about what is going on with Rome and her neighbours at this point in time, that they've decided that they need more people who can command armies, although they did make an interesting choice this year to just subsume all of those into a dictator. Yes. <sighs> okay. So I don't have any details to do with anything to do with Rome. Sad, (laughs) sad news. I have Diodorus Siculus. Great. And he gives us the names of the military tribunes with consular power, and they're all correct. Well, gold star for you, Diodorus Siculus. (laughs) Nice work, Diodorus. Now, he places these events in around 405 to 404 BCE, which makes sense because his chronology is running at a slightly different pace to the Roman chronology for these things. They're a few years out, and that's fine. But this means that we're in the last phase of the Peloponnesian War. So to put the broader situation of Rome in its Mediterranean global context... The Peloponnesian War is in its final phase. It's about to wrap up and things are still hotting up in Sicily as well Mm. with the Carthaginians. So they've done some raising of some cities. They've jumped in there and they're, they're still sort of milling about. People in Sicily, which are mostly Greek settlers at this point in time, are like, ah, the Carthaginians, North Africa is here. Uh, so there's a lot of that going on. And then part of what Carthage decides to do And this might tell us something about their reach in this period of history. They decide to embark, whilst they're also having this conflict in Sicily, to embark on another campaign against the Scythians, which are nowhere near Sicily. I was going to say, that seems (laughs) random. (laughs) It does on the face of it, but then I think about Carthage as being one of these Punic colony settlements. And so the Punic peoples in general and the North Africans are a very seafaring group of people in this period of history. That's how they do all of their trade. They're very much interested in being all across the Mediterranean as far as they understand Mm. it. So Scythia is going to be around Greece, keep going up, 
get to the top of that part of the Mediterranean, which is going to be near where we have modern Istanbul, for instance. Mm. And that kind of region to the to the north and to the west of that is going to be ancient Scythia. Yes, yes. So they embark on this sort of quest. Uh, <laughs> be like a war on two fronts, two naval fronts. <laughs> sure, why not? We're Carthaginians. We can do it. And while that's going on, the Sicilian Greeks get together with the Libyans, another group of North Africans, and the Iberians, who are the coastal people in the Spanish peninsula, mm-hmm. and they decide to then also get involved in this Scythian conflict to try and uh, sail behind the Carthaginians and just create disturbances for them to ruin their supply nice. chains and things like this. <laughs> so while Rome is very uh, nichely placed fighting it out with their very close neighbours, trying to figure out who they are and how they're going to run themselves. (laughs) And it always sounds like at this point in time, Rome is on the brink of a really big collapse where it doesn't get it together in time and will get overrun by everybody around them. The broader peoples in the Mediterranean are doing lots of big things. The Peloponnesian War is huge. What the Carthaginians are doing, if we believe Diodorus Siculus, with their multiple naval fronts is massive Mm. in terms of its undertaking so rome is a really small player right now on this mediterranean stage it definitely is and on that note dr g i think it might be time for the partial pick all right dr g tell us what is the partial pick about oh the partial pick we are gonna rate rome by its own standards Spoiler, I don't think it's going to do great. (laughs) And (laughs) there are five categories of which they can gain a maximum of 10 golden eagles. So for a total of a possible 50 gold eagles, which would mean Rome is at the height of all of its powers, we'll see how they do this time round. For the year 408 BCE. All right, so tell me, Dr. G, what's our first category? First of all, we have military clout. How well... Have the Romans equipped themselves in battle? I would say, like, pretty well, according to this. I mean, it's certainly not, like, the best battle because we don't get any details, and it apparently was really easy for them, so I'm not sure I want to give them too much credit, but... Well, that might be a sign that they're great. Well, yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, sure, I'll give them something, but, like, I don't want to go really any higher than, like, I think a seven or an eight because it seems... Okay. It just seems too easy. (laughs) They did also take, what, 3,000 people captive? That's a huge number, actually. Yeah, and allegedly captured a fort, although who the hell knows? <laughs> we don't know where it is. We're not sure. Well, we know, we, we know where right. it is, but it just doesn't seem to quite make sense. So it, I'm not sure if this narrative entirely adds up. All right. Well, let's say a seven then. Okay. It's pretty impressive. Yes. Uh, we don't get any of the dramatic details, which would make it even more well, impressive. Well, exactly. I've got, to, I've got to hold it back for when we get those really impressive ones. Yeah. 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 Okay. Our second category is diplomacy. Negotiation. Well, as we always say, I don't know that you have much of that going on when you're at war. I don't think they asked Antium to stand down. We didn't get a narrative where they sent any embassy out to be like, guys, have you considered exactly not doing exactly. this? Exactly, <laughs> and internally they're also not doing great. So I think I'm going to give it a zero. Actually, mm, I agree. Okay. Expansion. Well, okay. I mean, 
we we have got some capturing, you know, happening here. Control over Antium, you know. Yes, but does that count as expansion? Well, it wasn't necessarily clear that they decided to re-establish some sort of colonial outpost in Antium, well, for instance. Well, this is the thing. I feel like I feel like the implication of the narrative is that they are they've had a relationship with this place in the past, and I feel like this is really like re-establishing that they are in fact in control of this area. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll give them a one for that. <laughs> well, wait, what about this apparent fort? Apparent fort? No, no, Where is it? You know, the few, How big is it? Uh, well, it's at the Fusad Lake. I don't know how big it is. But. <laughs> I mean, two? Yeah. I feel like we should give them a two. Yeah. Two it All is. Right. The fourth category is Weirtus. Not really. I mean, uh, you know, Ahala has a moment, but it's more a speechifying kind of moment. Sometimes speechifying can be weird. To it us. is, but I don't feel like it's that grand a speech, you know? No. Yeah. And it doesn't have any of those sort of classic weird kind of elements to it. No. Of like displaying wounds and things like this. And and then we've definitely got the other two military tribunes who don't acquit themselves well. No. no. It's, <laughs> it's not a good moment. They're sort of like they're kind of just like whinging a little well, bit about their situation. And even Livy says the dictator kind of had a very easy time of it. He was like, yeah, you know, he's actually probably kind of lucky he didn't really face any major action. Just got to return home alive, you know, quietly. <laughs> nice, nice. All right, so. I think also a zero, zero. yeah. I think a zero. Zero. Yeah. All right. And the final category is the citizen score. Look, it's not the worst we've ever seen. <laughs> but, again, I don't feel like it's a great time to be a citizen because there is still this conflict of the orders stuff nagging away there you know they're not get able to get any plebeians into power not that a citizen is a plebeian but to be honest we've actually kind of treated it that way <laughs> well and also the way that these elections are described by Livia's unfolding mm. with a deliberate sort of confusion in order to create a particular outcome mm. I think that's, in a way, that's a dishonest approach to the citizen body. Yeah, well, exactly. Like that yeah. is, and they've done it again. They've done it twice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How dare they? Yeah, and so, I mean, look, the war's not the worst. It doesn't sound like lots of Romans died. There's no fight against the levy. I think maybe a five then. So, well, like, on the balance, it's not, well, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not terrible, but it's not great. It's kind of just like the halfway house of like, you know what? There's some pros and cons to being a citizen around here. I, I'm not sure that that's how we've given citizen scores in the past. I'm allowed to change my mind. Sure. Look, I still feel like it's got to be weighted on the downside because of the election thing. Like, I, I know yeah. what you mean. Like, it's not the worst, but I feel like it's still not great. I, I would be more inclined to give a three. How about we cut it in half and go for four? I knew you say that's why I said three. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. G, that means that we have wound up with the Romans on a grand total of 13 out of 50 possible golden eagles. 13? Oh, well, that's unlucky, but... Uh... <laughs> I think it's because our rating system is, quite frankly, all over the place. <laughs> I look, I mean, you know, I, it depends on how I feel on the day. Um, I don't claim to be consistent, and Rome is always changing as this well. This is true. This so. is true. <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to seeing how this whole, 
you know, election fraud. I guess no, it's not that, but I, I look forward to seeing how this election strategy plays out in 407 BCE. Looking forward to it. I'll catch you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. You can find our sources, sound credits, and an automated transcript in our show notes. Our music is by Bettina Joy de Guzman. You too can support our show and help us to produce more engaging content about the ancient world by becoming a Patreon. In return, you receive exclusive early access to our special episodes. Today, we would like to say a special salve to Arne, Sally, Desmond, Lisa, and Peep, some of our recent Patreon members. Thank you so much, guys, for your support. However, if you just got mugged out in the dangerous streets of ancient Rome, please, please, just tell someone about the show or give us a five-star review. And that goes for our book as well. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.